0: Right. let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles back to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we've come down to verse uh, 49 this morning. We're going to be looking at just two verses again. And if you'll remember, we looked at the first part of this now two weeks ago. And we'll read over it again so you can be reminded. But remember, it was that event where the 12, presumably, they'd been arguing on the way uh, through Galilee about which of them was the greatest. And remember Jesus in response, he, he takes that child and he, and he places him by his side in the midst of them and he tells them essentially, this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Right? like if you want to become great then you need to assume the posture of this child. You need to humble yourself and become uh, dependent, trusting lowly like this child. Um, and that's as far as I can tell, Luke makes it clear where Mark does not, but as far as I can tell, what we're going to be looking at today in verses 49 and 50 is simply the follow-up uh, to that conversation. So we're going to, we're going to jump on in here, uh, and we're going to actually begin reading in verse 46, as I said, to be reminded of that context. Uh, I think they're inseparable. Uh, All right. so Luke chapter 9, verse 46, as always, I remind you, this is the word of God. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is a living word, an active word, um, but also a word that's able to discern even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. See that? It pierces the soul. Let's read it together. Verse 46, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you this morning in gratitude and in need. We're grateful uh, for the holy uh, uh, revelation of Yourself that we've just read. We praise You for Your grace and and uh, making it known to us. We confess our need of You, our need of the enlightenment and illumination of Your Spirit in order that we may truly understand and truly receive it. So again, as always, at this hour, we look to you and we ask for that help. Oh, Lord, open our minds and our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look back with me at uh, verse 49, and I want you to notice the way it begins. As I said before, Luke makes it very clear with the language that he uses that this these two verses are in fact connected to what we looked at two weeks ago. He doesn't just say as Mark does that John said, although both are true, but Luke says very specifically verse 49 that John answered. So this is is John responding, if you will, to the response that Jesus had given them in that previous section. Now let's be reminded of that. Look back in verse 48. We'll be bouncing around in chapter 9 a little this morning. Remember what Jesus had told them. We just read it, but let's, let's let it sink in here. Whoever receives this child, notice, in my name or on my account, or because right, he's with me, essentially, receives me. And whoever receives me, he says, receives him who sent me, receives the Father. And then he had that statement at the end. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, with the reminder of the backdrop of that conversation in mind, let's look at verse 49 again and read John's response and consider it. John answered, so this is immediately after that. John answered, Master, amen to that, right? He's recognizing positional authority here. Master, first of all, he says, we saw someone Casting out demons in your name. So he just said, if, "If whoever receives this child in my name is going to be great, right? Or, or, and now he's saying, in response to that, we've, we've seen someone casting out demons in your name. Now, stop right there. You've probably already read ahead. Look at verse 1, if you've got your Bibles open. Remember um, how this chapter had begun. This all connects together, I believe. We have a decisive turning point next week in verse 51. We'll talk about that more, Lord willing. Um, but this is kind of concluding this, what they call, great Galilean ministry of Jesus. Look, in verse 1, we read that Jesus called the twelve together. He had already called them to apostleship, but at this point he summons them before him, and he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Okay, we've reiterated that a lot. He, verse 2 He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to attest to that through these healings, through these deliverances. But now think about this, okay? Prior to that, right, as far as we know in the scripture, it was only Jesus who had been able to command the demons to do what he wanted them to do, right? He alone had been able to, to conquer demonic forces, right? It was only at his power and at his authority that we've seen them fleeing up until this point. But now, when that happened in verse 1, he's, he's delegating that authority out. He's spreading it out to the 12 apostles who would later be called, right? Now, I've said this before, but what did that tell the folks in Galilee? Well, it showed them that these men were his men, right? That that they wielded his sword, if you will. That they, that they spoke on his behalf and that what they were saying, the message that they were proclaiming, they were proclaiming it with his approval. And it showed them that because of the status that they had in Christ's kingdom as, a, um, as apostles, they were able to do these miraculous things. They were able under Christ's authority to command these demonic forces, okay? Now, do you see why John then says what he says here? Because I think when we take the verse in isolation and out of that broader context, it just seems to not even fit, right? Because the context here, they were just talking about position, status, posture, if you will, in the kingdom of God. See, so it's very relevant that they say now, here's this man, and I say man because the pronoun someone there is in the masculine gender. This man who's who's he's not one of the twelve, okay? Who's been officially given that authority by Jesus in a ceremony, if you will. He's not even a disciple. We're going to read in a minute, in a in a technical sense, and yet we they are seeing this man invoking Jesus' power. Right? Invoking, employing Jesus' authority in order to apparently successfully command these demonic forces, to conquer these demonic forces. Do you, do you see why this is a big deal? Like, whichever way you cut this, okay? whichever way you go about trying to deal with this, something big is, is at stake here. The implications of it, I think, are huge. All right, look at, look at the end of verse 49 and and notice the way they respond. Well, I guess it's not the very end, but kind of in the middle there. You'd think they'd be happy. They're not, right? And I don't think we would have been either, especially not here, okay? Christ's authority is expanding here, but but they, they don't like it. You can see how they respond. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. <laughs> we tried to stop him, All right? Not... To call him into the fold, we tried to simply prevent him. Now, why? Is it, it, delivering people from demonic oppression a bad thing. No, it's a good thing, right? Like t- to conquer those foes. Well, they said simply, they gave the, re- gave the reason. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, let's not be too critical. There, it's possible that John's statement here and and the apostles' actions here are sincere but just misguided, okay? Let me give you... I don't think the context lends itself to that, um, but but it's possible. Let me give you an example that Philip Ryken points out that will at least help us to see where they were coming from. He says, John's argument did have a certain logic to it. Here's the logic. Apparently, this freelance exorcist that always makes us uncomfortable right was not following Jesus in the way of discipleship surely there was something wrong with someone working in the name of Christ but not following him in the biblical way right we would say that today right okay and then he says somewhat rhetorically this is not actually his position he's just working his way through it at this point in the commentary trying to help us think He says, shouldn't he then be stopped? And wasn't it up to the disciples to stop him? Okay? Now, we see something like this in Acts chapter 19. Uh, uh, It's it's a very similar scenario, but it takes a different path. I think it's going to be helpful for us. Beginning in verse 11, we see the the context of what happened. Uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, why such an extraordinary manifestation of miracles with Paul? I mean, this is kind of unparalleled in a sense. Well, remember, was Paul there on the mountain when the twelve had been commissioned? He was not. He refers to himself as an apostle born out of time. As such, his apostleship was often questioned. It was often called into question. But God worked extraordinary miracles beyond that sometimes of other apostles at the hands of Paul to prove and show this man was his man too. Okay, Nothing new there. We've talked about that a lot. But watch this. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists they didn't do this full time they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, "I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims now are these Jewish believers no or they would be referred to as believers like Paul was he's a Jew right These are not believers, but they're they're trying they're seeing that Hey this, this Jesus, under whose authority Paul is operating, he 's powerful, and, and these demonic forces, like they do everything that his men tell them to do, and they 're trying to tap into that and, and, and use that sort of sort of like a, like a spell or like an authoritative or a, a, a third party command, if you will now. Uh, Notice the historicity. Luke again says there are seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. This is verse 14. We're doing this, but watch what happened here. Here's where it goes differently from our man. And there's a big difference between the man in our text, I would argue, and these seven sons of Sceva. And that's the presence of faith. I'm jumping ahead. He says, but the evil spirit answered them who had said, I adjure you in the in the name of the one whom Paul's employing. He says, Jesus, I know. You think they know him? Yeah, Yeah, he created them, right? (laughs) Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, right? Recognition of Paul's authority because he's an apostle. He's Jesus' emissary. But who are y'all, right? (laughs) And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, Look, mastered all of them. You don't play with this. I tell people this all the time when they ask about exorcism. You don't play with this. It mastered all of them, empowered them, so that they fled out of the of that house naked and wounded. Guys, these men were frauds, right? And as such, they were found out. Guys, in that vein, while we're here, remember this warning, the most frightening verse in... Uh, portion of verses in all of scripture, I would say. Jesus said on that day, the day when, when, when he takes all things into account and reckons judgment upon everything, final judgment, many will say to me, notice, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And he simply says, I will declare to them, miracle workers, prophets, alleged at least, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? What characterizes them? Lawlessness. See that? Wanting to do great ministerial deeds in the name of Christ, but not having a heart of faith and obedience. A heart that's submitted to his will. Any event. Here's the thing about our text. Here's, I just wanted to throw, remind us of that in that context because lying signs and wonders are very real. Um, and they can be today. Um, think about this in the distinction with our text. This man whom the disciples are seeing, as far as we know, he is able to cast out those demons. Understand the difference? Like... So what do we like? What do we make of that? In, in the fact that he's not a disciple in a technical sense, he's he's not following Jesus as he goes around like the rest are. He's not under the apostolic ecclesiastical structure, at least not in a technical sense. He seems to be just out there as a freelance guy, as an itinerant exorcist, just like we read about. Okay, so why is this man? being allowed, being allowed to, to wield the sword of Christ, and the sons of Skeva were not. Understand the dilemma here? Think, think about, I don't know, maybe Pastor David could tell us this, but think about what the gymnastics, the papists, will have to do to a passage like this, right? He's wielding these apostolic signs, but he's not under the apostolic ecclesiastical structure. And of course, I say that to kind of tongue in cheek, but guys, this all this ought to make us all do a double take, right? the the The, the authority of the Pope is self appointed, okay. The the authority of the Roman bishops and cardinals that's just something that they've that they've proclaimed about themselves, okay. But they don't have any actual authority. is what I'm saying. Any actual apostolic authority. But here's the thing, the 12 in our text, they do, like, that's real, like, we saw Jesus delegating that authority, see, like, they really are the patriarchs of the kingdom of God, like, it's real, and it's true, and we read it, and yet here's this guy that's, that's out he's an outlier he's he's operating out here outside out from under their sphere of authority perceived at least out from under their purview for sure and he's able to do it right like, what do we make of that okay how do we how do we harmonize true biblical authority with a with an event like this well i think uh, hopefully i have you hooked um I think to understand this, we've got to go to the Old Testament. Okay, like uh, Scripture interprets Scripture, usually works the other way. But I think there's some there's some things in the Old Testament that that we desperately need to consider here if we're going to make light of this. First, the the first thing is, and it's more just a, a, a survey of the Old Testament than it is a particular text. We would be here all day, and. The, the thing to note, the thing we see as we read the Old Testament is that God is always at work. And, and, he, and he's always working in, in a capacity and to an extent that's that's greater and more encompassing than what we realize. I want you to think about this. Think about all those mysterious servants of God that just show up out seemingly out of nowhere throughout the Old Testament. I've got a big list. It's not exhaustive. But think about it. These folks I'm about to show you, they weren't registered among the people of God. They weren't Israelites. They weren't what we'd call Jews. And, guys, there's dozens of them. Think about it. Think about this. Think about Melchizedek. Okay? Where did he come from? He just shows up when Abraham's coming from the slaughter of the kings, and he's just the priest of God in Salem. Right? Now you say well he came from heaven he's Jesus. Well probably. But either way like there's no like lineage there I mean there's no all, we're following the story of Abraham and then all of a sudden Abraham is in this land and there's this functioning priest of God who's also a king by the way of future Jerusalem. Think about that. It just shows up out of nowhere. Think of a less potentially divine example, Jethro. Moses' father in law. That's where did he come from? He's called the priest of God at Midian. It's pagan land, pagan people, if you will, ethnically, in the time. Moses is on the lamb from Egypt and he goes out and he just so happens to find the daughters of a Midianite who's called a priest of God. Do you see that? Where did that come from? <laughs> you see? God's work is always greater than what we realize. Think about Balaam. I can't spend this long on every one of them. You say, well, he's a mixed bag. And he definitely is. But in the end, like he, he's God's prophet in the end. In the end, he does God's bidding. And there are overtones of that all the way through. Caleb of Joshua and Caleb. Did you know he wasn't an Israelite? <laughs> he's not. He's what what's referred to as a Kenizzite which most think is is a descendant of Esau, an Edomite. Othniel, the judge, his younger brother, same thing. One of the judges, deliverers of Israel that God raises up. Like, where where do these guys come from? Rahab, the Canaanite, former prostitute. She's there in Jericho as the armies of Israel are poised to take over. And she's there and she has faith in the God of Israel. Think about that. What's caused that? See, that's God at work outside of those borders. Ah, I don't have time for all this. The Kenites, JL, right? The peg driver. Um, the Kenites are like a whole family that attach themselves to Israel and serve the God of Israel. Right? Look, there's another list. <laughs> Shamgar, I don't even go him. Ruth, she's down there in Moab. Enemies, big enemies, and then a Jewish man comes down, unfaithful, kinda, marries her, dies, and long story short, she becomes David's grandma or something, right? Great grandma, Jesus, great 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 grandma. I mean, because think about how God is at work outside of those small borders. The uh, Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba said, like he's presented as faithful. That's one of those (laughs) it's that are forbidden, right? In Palestine, the widow of Zarephath. uh, She's Sidonian. And the Hebrew says God sent Elijah to her and not to the widows of Israel. She's just out there. God sends his man to her. Do you see that? She's one of his. She's out there. Over and over and over again. Naaman, we don't even know Job's ethnicity, really. Some say he's Edomite. I don't know about that. But think about this one finally. Think about the people of Nineveh. You think God was at work there? <laughs> Sent Joseph to the, jo- uh, no, Joseph. Jonah, thank you, to the capital city of their oppressors and, and to call them to repent. <laughs> to, to heed the word of Yahweh. Guys, that implies faith. And they do. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of them. And they do. You see what I'm saying? Like, we need to understand, and the Old Testament makes that very clear. God is all his work is always greater than what you and I realize. It's always greater. When we try to put him in our box, we become fools. Now, if he if he says the box, <laughs> we hold to his box. Right? <laughs> okay, let's, let's be clear here. The boxes he creates we hold to. We don't put him in our own box. He's always doing something. But now, there's one thing in particular that happens in the Old Testament that, that, that's a great parallel to, to what's happening here in our text. Um, um, it's in Numbers 11, I think. I will have it on the screen. It began like a lot of things back then with the people grumbling. <laughs> grumbling the people of Israel grumbling against Moses. Um, and against God ultimately, and God becomes angry and and he, and he pours out his wrath and he consumes some of the outlying regions of the camp, and then of course, the people cry out to Moses, Moses intercedes, God relents we've seen that happen a lot then in like two verses later, it happens again. <laughs> this time they're complaining about the manna it's dry and dull and boring that falls from heaven and keeps them alive, right. And then, and then we read this um, in verse 14. Moses comes to this recognition. He says, He's the covenant mediator, okay? I am not able, he says, to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Yeah, he's right about that. Right? The Lord, watch the way the Lord responds. Uh, in verse 16, he says, Gather for me. This will be important in a few weeks. Seventy men of the elders of Israel, leaders, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Remember, that was the place where the covenant business was conducted between God and Moses, who would later mediate that to the people Okay, early on. Bring them with you to the tent of meeting, and watch the language. Let them take their stand there with you. So see, that, that position, that work, He's broadening that out to just, from just Moses to these 70 elders of the people. And he's saying, look, here's ability. I'll take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people along with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now let me be clear. Hear what I'm saying. That's not the parallel. <laughs> okay, Jesus don't need help with covenant mediation. Understand, okay? That was meant to point us to Jesus, to the need for Jesus. I'm just giving you the context. The parallel begins it down in verse twenty five. The Lord then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they. Prophesied, okay. Moses' primary task, right, had been prophecy as God's prophet, spokesperson. So here's here's the spirit of God bearing witness now that that authority had been meted out to a lesser degree on these men, okay, but that God was behind it. But now watch this: they did not continue to do it, okay. So it happened just just briefly just to prove that god was in this it wasn't just something moses was doing and then it stopped now verse 26 here's the here's the parallel you're probably thinking he's crazy there's no parallel just wait now two men of of the elders remained in the camp one named eldad the other named medad and the spirit rested on them so Here's two men of the elders that didn't come out to the ceremony. Understand that? They didn't come out to the ordination. Okay, But the spirit still fell upon them because they were called to this task. They were among those registered as elders, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp out where the general people were. Outliers, if you will. And look what happens when this happens. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua like John the apostle in our text uh, says the assistant of Moses says to Moses, "My lord, master, stop them." See that See, what, it, is Joshua like he's not being wicked here, right? He's 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 trying to prevent the usurpation of authority. Right? He, he's jealous for Moses' apostolic authority. Um but watch how Moses responds, and it's so it's so important. Moses said to him, this ought to have been the way that the, the, the apostles responded, are you jealous for my sake? He said, I would, that's what that means, would. It means this is this is what I would. this is what I would want. I would that all the Lord's people, the whole camp, were prophets. <laughs> he said, "I would that the Lord would put His Spirit on them all, brethren." It's a, sim- a very similar thing that I think is happening in our text. The apostles couldn't understand it yet, okay? But but later on, Peter's going to recognize and say that that God is is pouring out His Spirit. On all flesh. Right? Think about this. In, in in the beginning, I think, of the next chapter, there's going to be an official sort of uh, 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 spreading out of this delegated power and authority to the 70, or the 72. We'll talk about that later. Okay? But to this larger group that's larger than the 12, they're going to be given the ability, the authority, to wield this same type of power that the apostles had wielded back in uh, the beginning of chapter nine, but eventually, uh, w- Peter would come to say that 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 Jesus would pour. It was his to give. We saw that last week with the ascension. Ascension. Sorry, he would pour out his spirit upon all his people. Right upon he'd go on to see sons and daughters, young men, old men, slaves. Right? male and female slaves, It says, in those days, quoting the prophet Joel, of course, he says, I'll pour out my Spirit and they shall all prophesy. See? See the difference between the Old Covenant economy. We don't have time to go into this much, but in the Old Covenant economy, only, only the anointed servants of God had the Spirit poured out upon them to empower them. Typically it was prophets, priests, and kings. Sometimes it was tradesmen to build the temple, to make furnishings. We read things like that. But it wasn't just on all the camp. It wasn't a a nation of priests, a nation of prophets. Understand that. But in the New Covenant economy, that's very much the reality. God's Spirit, Moses' wish is, is realized in the New Covenant. Now, let me be clear about something, though. This work that the, the, the whole church is empowered to do, it's still supervised by the apostles. Okay? The distinguishment is simply that, that it's not the apostles alone that are actually doing that work of ministry. Remember, we emphasized that a lot before. Paul says this, long after the day of Pentecost... That Christ gave as gifts to His church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds being pastors there in the Greek. To what end? So they'll have professionals to do the work of ministry. Is that it? No! To equip the saints, all the Lord's people, to do the work of ministry. And in equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, the body of Christ is build up. See, Christ's ministry is for the whole church. It's not just for the professionals. Now, does that mean anybody can do anything they want to do? No. Christ is Lord of his church. He sets restrictions on who can do what. We don't set those aside. Again, when he draws the box, we acknowledge the box. <laughs> okay? We just don't draw boxes that he doesn't draw. Um so, it, so it, it, it let me say, it, that doesn't mean that anybody can do anything they want. But it does mean that everybody should be doing something. You see the difference? The, the, the task of the ordained men, those that are set aside in the tent of meeting ceremony, if you will, is simply to equip the rest to do uh, their part. At least in accordance with Ephesians 4 there. Now, look back at uh, our text, long segue, but look at verse 50, and look at how Jesus responds. Luke tells us, Jesus said to John, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, what's he implying in that? He's implying that ultimately, there are only two sides. And ultimately, this man here, he's not fighting for the other team, is he? In fact, by, by the very nature of what he's doing, he's fighting against the other team, right? Like, he, if there are only two sides, he's fighting the other team. He's saying he's a friend and not a foe. Now, this reminds us of something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 11. Um, you can turn there if you like, but uh, you don't have to. It'll be on the screen. And remember the context here. This is when uh, Jesus was casting out a, a mute demon. Uh, when the demon had gone, the man spoke. The people marveled. But, of course, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the Prince, the ruler of the demons. So Jesus has has made the demonic forces flee yet again, and they say he can only do this because he's on their side. He can only do this because he's got a contractual arrangement with Beelzebul, the the ruler, the prince of the demons. They're saying he's playing for the same team ultimately. Okay, he's made some kind of agreement. Of course, Jesus says, uh, or. Verse 17 says uh, that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Look, every kingdom, every army, every team divided against itself is laid waste. What happens in in the scenario of a civil war? Destruction, right? That kingdom is not going to flourish. It's laid waste. Uh, uh, He says even a divided household is going to crumble. He says if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? He's showing them the logical fallacy of what they're saying. Okay? How can it be, right? Like if I'm if I'm it, Satan's not going to yoke up with me, that's going to destroy his kingdom. I'm not in league with him or it would or these demons wouldn't be being conquered. And he says, for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But verse 20, he says, but, here's, here's the thing they didn't want to know or recognize. He says, if it is by the finger, anthropomorphism, right? if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, what does that mean? It means that the other team is here. You see that? It means that the other armies arrived. It means that the other kingdom has come and it's look at the language. It's come upon you. He, 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 he uh, elaborates even more. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But look, when one stronger than he, this is what's happening, attacks him, overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. See, the kingdom of darkness is being plundered Because the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of the king. And then he says this. It gives this sweeping maxim like the one in our text. And and some falsely say that that, that they stand opposed to each other. You'll see why quickly. Because he says from the opposite angle, verse 23, Whoever is not with me... That guy wasn't with them, right? (laughs) In a technical sense. Is against me, and whoever does not gather with me, come to my side, scatters. Now, what do we see in this that's similar? We see a very binary proposition, right? We see once again that there are only two sides here there is the side of Christ, there is the side of Satan, if you will. The paradox that we struggle with, the apparent contradiction of the two, I think is simply due to the fact that they are spoken uh, about different circumstances. I'm going to let, for sake of time, R.C. Sproul explain this. It's a little long, but it's quicker than I would do it. He says this, In terms of the external ministry of the church, those who are not pitting themselves in direct and overt opposition uh, to the ministry of Christ's church, by virtue of the fact that they are not an obstacle, are indirectly a help. But he goes further. He says, Here is a man who is involved in exorcism, and in doing that, or in doing it, he is promoting the ministry of Jesus. Now, watch, this statement's important. Whatever else the man understood, okay. There's got to be a measure of faith here, guys, for him to go up against the demons. We see what they do to imposters and frauds. right? There's got to be a measure of faith here for this to be successful. It's probably infantile. Maybe faith like that child. okay, very men- But in that sense, a strong faith. Remember the disciples couldn't cast out the demon out of the man at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration. The nine, remember? Think about that. All that's... Flown together to come to this point. He says, Whatever else the man understood, he, he understood that if there was any power to relieve people from demonic oppression, it was associated with the power of Jesus Christ. Now that's simple faith in a sense, but it's profound. He's saying, there it is, exclusively. This man, he says, was not undermining the ministry of Jesus, He says he was not against him, in fact, he was for him. And I think he's absolutely right. We have no reason to think otherwise. Even though he's an outlier. Even though he's not at the tent of meeting in the ordination ceremony, he's for Jesus. And God's doing that work. Uh, uh, in mysterious ways outside of of that close context. Now, he goes on to say this. Conversely, it was in the context, talking about the uh, uh, Luke 11 passage, of a person's personal commitment that Jesus said, I'm sorry, he that is not with me is against me. Jesus is saying here, he says, that there is no point of neutral ground. And he concludes, one, and I think this is the point of both passages, one is either for Christ or he is against Christ. You cannot remain neutral. Brethren, that is a fence that you cannot straddle. Okay? He will divide you asunder if you try. It, it's, 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 there is Christ and there is all others. Okay? People often say, why do all these groups hate Christians and not Muslims? But fill in the blank. Right? Why, why the attack on Christians and why not these other faiths? Guys, it's very simple. They're on the same team. Right. They're on the same side. They've drawn up on the same side of the line. And, and let me just say, you will inevitably choose sides. Yes. Everyone you know inevitably will choose sides. It's unavoidable. Right. Look at that in the way Mark responds. It's a parallel uh, account of, of uh, Luke 9, 49 and 50. Look at the way Mark responds. It shows us sort of that language of inevitability. Jesus said to him in response there, Do not stop him. It's just more information. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Do you see the inevitability of that? <laughs> no one who's been enabled to do things like this in my name is is for long not going to profess me okay now i know that's mysterious we'll qualify it at the end i hope okay with another passage but just hang on to it for now but but just let me emphasize there and he says the same thing in marks the one who is not against us is for us right so when when it comes to the Son of Man, when it comes to your response to the Son of Man, there are but two categories. We 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 tend to try to be nicer than that, okay? But we don't need to be nicer than the Word of God. You biblically, you are either a friend or you are a foe. Now, you can call those categories whatever you'd like, okay? But there's no neutrality. You can refer to them as the lost and the savior, the elect and the non-elect. You can refer to it as the church in the world, if you like eschatological language, whatever. But in the end, it all boils down to, to this, to, to who it is that has your allegiance. Right? That's what it all boils down to in the end. Who it is for whom you're fighting. Right? Who it is to whom you belong. Right. Who it is, for whom you live your life, for whom for whom you exist, right? For whom you do what you do, it all boils down to that. And guys, if that's yourself, guess what? That's still not Christ. You can say, "I don't fight for either side. I fight for me." Okay, I'm not with Satan. I'm am not with Christ. I'm for me. One. In fact, you don't even realize it. You're serving your master, the devil, and he just has you bewitched. And you, that's, that's what the scripture clearly teaches. And whatever reality that's hidden in that will inevitably manifest itself in time. Amen. Now, I want to make a couple of applications. Um, and it, hopefully here we will resolve that mystery that I pointed out a minute ago. The first comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, And beginning in verse 3, we read this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, Paul says, speaking in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God, ever says Jesus is anathema, Jesus is accursed. No one can say ability, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now guys, that's not saying this is how you can tell whether tongues are real or not, whether people will voice the words. It's about a disposition of the heart. It's, it's not about things you can say. You can, you can get people to say Jesus is Lord and them still be servants of Satan. What's he talking about here? He's saying no one who blasphemes and reviles Christ in his heart has the Spirit of God. Think about the Jewish context, right? That They had laid claim to the Spirit of God. And Paul says they don't have the Spirit of God if they curse Jesus in their hearts. Consequently, no one has that true faith that acknowledges Christ as curios, true saving faith, except that it's happened by the Spirit of God. See that? What does it tell us about the man, the outlier out here? Who's different? What's different about him than the sons of Sceva? The Spirit of God, the presence of faith in Christ. It's, it's probably infantile. It's probably very immature faith, probably. But in a sense, it's very strong. <laughs> okay? In a sense, it exceeds that of the apostles at this point. God's doing something out there with this man, right? It's a mystery to us, but it appears that God's at work. Now look, going on, Paul says this. Great applications for us that are germane. He says, now there are varieties of gifts... Everybody's not called and equipped to do the same thing, Paul's saying, if you remember the context of spiritual gifts. He says, but it's the same spirit. Okay, He says, there are varieties of servitude, of service, but it's the same master. It's the same Lord. Think about that. He says, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empower, empowers excuse me, them all in everyone. Now, that's very relevant to what we see happening here in this text. But watch this. This is a good reminder for us all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To what end? For what we read in Ephesians 4. For the common good. For the edification, the old King James says there in Ephesians 4, of the church. The upbuilding of each other you understand the upbuilding of the kingdom of God guys it's the lord's work it's not about you it's not about me it's the lord's work it wasn't about john it wasn't about the 12 it was about jesus right and he was magnifying the name of jesus now the second application and it's piercing i think it comes from philippians 1 beginning in verse 15. I think it shows us how the twelve should have responded to the man and how they would have responded po- post-Pentecost, right? post-regeneration, post-infilling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we see blunder and blunder and misstep and misstep and misunderstanding and misunderstanding and folly and folly and fear and cowardice and just t- from, the, from the apostles until... Pentecost and then they're bold as lines. and then they understand the truth and they understand the kingdom and they understand Christ's work and they go forth and they lay down their necks for it with power Okay, this is, this is after that now we see Paul remember Philippians he's imprisoned he writes this while being imprisoned for the faith he says this watch it parallels it I think amazingly We'll be done here. Some indeed preach Christ, he says, from envy and rivalry. Think about that. First century church, okay? He's saying some are out preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, not for good motivations because they envy me, essentially, or the other apostles, because they they see me as a rival or they intend to rival me. We'll see that in a minute. He says, others are doing it from goodwill. He says, those who are doing it out of goodwill, verse 16, the latter, they do it out of love. They do it out of love. They're out proclaiming Christ while I'm here in prison for Christ, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Okay, see the situation. He says, the former, in rivalry, he says, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Now, this is in the context of at least the visible church here. They are proclaiming Christ selfishly to promote themselves. Does that happen today? Yeah, like, amen, oh me, right? He says, they're not doing it sincerely. They're doing it to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here Paul sidelined. It's like, here's, here's, a play, here's a way for us to step up, Right? He's he's sidelined, he's in prison. We can step and we can advance ourselves in this thing. Okay, and I know there's debates about what the context is here, but I think at the most basic sense it's that. Now, is that evil of them? Yeah. Like without doubt, okay? Without doubt, this is iniquitous. This is evil. These men almost certainly are not servants of God. Okay, they're more like the sons of Sceva. Okay? But watch Paul's response. And you all know it. He says, what then? In other words, how should I respond to this? Now this is convicting. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense, just pretending to adore Christ, or actually adoring Christ, in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And he says, In that, I rejoice. He says, yeah, and I'll go on rejoicing. Guys, if that's our heart right there, then we'll rejoice in the successes of others. We'll rejoice in the successes of others even if they're not a part of our denomination. Amen? Even if they're not a part of our theological tribe. Right? If that's our heart... If Christ is all and in all, we'll rejoice when they succeed. Yes, amen. You understand that? Right. When, when they're not a part of our local church, or maybe even our clique, you shouldn't have them, okay? But our clique, they form when they're not a part of our clique within our local church. We'll rejoice when they succeed in ministry. Why? Because they're magnifying Christ. And, and to, to, to the degree... And guys, I'm guilty of this. I'm not lecturing you. Like, like This is convicting. Okay? But to the degree that they magnify Christ, we ought to rejoice in their success. Amen? Do we need the Spirit of God to do that? Amen. <laughs> hey, a hearty amen to that. Yeah. Let's ask Him for that help. O Lord Christ, pour out your Spirit upon us anew, we pray this morning. Set our hearts upon you with the greatest affection and desire. Help us to delight and strive for your glory, to set aside our own selfish ambitions and rivalry. Thank you that your work is much greater than we could ever predict or comprehend. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being a part of that work. Help us to do it faithfully where you've called us, individually. We ask in your name. Amen.